turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 36 in particular this morning. Beginning in John chapter 6 and continuing through the chapter 8, the opposition to Jesus and his ministry has been growing, especially by the scribes and Pharisees of the Jews. Uh, Many had refused to believe his claims, yet some said they believed. However, much of that belief was of a superficial kind. It was in their heads, they understood, but was not in their hearts. Jesus knew what was going on in their hearts very, very well. And we see that, we'll see that in our text here. He confronts some of them, and he does this by focusing on the idea of freedom. That's what we want to do this morning. Let me read for you uh, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Freedom, good time to think about it on this long holiday weekend in which we remember how our country was founded so that we might be a free nation. Freedom is something everybody wants and everyone needs. Yet how many people can really say, I am free? Jesus lived at a time when human liberty was at a very great peril. He himself was part of the Roman Empire, that was, and the people of the empire were enslaved under the dictator Caesar. Keep in mind, as we go through this text, his comments about freedom are not political, although it's related to that. Primarily, it's spiritual freedom that Jesus is talking about, the freedom of the heart. And that's what he's focusing on here. Let's begin with the, the essence of freedom in verses 31 and 32. What, what do we mean by freedom? Verse 31 begins that Jesus was speaking to the Jews who had believed on him. Primarily, these are the scribes and Pharisees of, of verses, uh, in pre, uh, verses earlier in the chapter. Let me just summarize some of the things that were said about Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees just in chapter 8. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Where is your father? Will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? Who are you? Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? (coughs) And the results of all this in verse 59, they sought to stone him and 
and kill him. That's the context of this chapter. So what does it mean to be free? Well, our text tells us it has a lot to do with Jesus' words and the truth of those words. Verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus relates this to himself as the Son of God. He who said later in chapter 14, I am the truth. I am the truth. His disciples are those who abide in his words. What do we mean by abiding? Think of your own home. It's a place where you abide. It's a place of rest, a relaxation, a center of one's life. If I were to ask you, where do you live? You would say, well, it's such and such an address on a street in a certain city. But if I were to ask you, where do you abide spiritually? It's a little different question related to this topic. <coughs> Excuse me. Disciples learn the truth of the Word of God. So this alerts us to the fact that freedom has a moral dimension. It has something to do, yes, with laws. It has something to do with principles, with rules, with set limits. Even God's freedom has limits. God cannot deny himself. In our world, a liberty of self-centered choices is not true freedom because freedom is not doing what you want to do but doing what you ought to do. And for that, we go to the truth of the Word of God. Think of a train on its tracks, pulling down the tracks toward a destination. As long as that train remains on the tracks, it's going to go to the left, to the right, up hills, down, but eventually it's going to get to its proper destination. Apply that to what would happen if the train, which would represent, let's say, believers, and the tracks represent the truth of God's Word, what happens when the train would leave the tracks? Well, you know what happens in that derailment? Chaos. As it hits the ground and simply stops, it's not able to continue its journey. We need the Lord's yes, what to do. We need his no. Don't do that. If we follow those rules, we'll be in good shape. We'll be living, living free. Do you know that James 1.25 has an interesting phrase? The perfect law of liberty. Law and liberty are right together in that phrase. And it's perfect. It's God's law, God's rules, God's ways. Jesus is encouraging his hearers to pay attention to his words because they are the truth and they're best for them in terms of this whole idea of freedom. Listen to this quotation from a fellow named Leonard Cochran. The difference between a river and a swamp is that a river is confined within banks while a swamp is not. 
because a river is confined and channeled, it has life. It is a mighty, moving thing. Because a swamp has no restrictions, it becomes thin and stagnant. In our modern life, many boast of freedom. They want life without restrictions and without confinement. Only they forget that such living becomes stagnant. Now, the Puritans understood that very much for very instrumental in founding our country, their influence. And when it came time to putting our Constitution together, excuse me, <coughs> they uh, understood the importance of God's Word, God's laws. Now, that doesn't mean they're all believers as we think of them today in terms of their relationship to Christ, but they at least had the context of a God in heaven who had rules that we should follow. And so they put safeguards in the Constitution. The checks and balances are perhaps the most well-known. You have the executive, legislative, judicial branch, and they're supposed to kind of check everybody, one another, so they don't take off by themselves. We know there's always a tendency for that to be done, even in recent days. De Tocqueville, Alexander Tocqueville, was a Frenchman who toured uh, the country in the uh, 1800s, and he made various observations, and among many of them, here's one. There can be no freedom without the righteous influence of divine commands for living. And yet in all human history, in all nations, in all places, what do we find? Enslavement and lack of freedom. Remarkable. Why is that so? Why has it been so hard down through all of human history for people to be free? And the answer is because there's an enemy. All the way down through history, there's been and continues to be a very powerful enemy to what Jesus has just said. So secondly, let's look at the enemy of freedom in verses 33 and 34. Verse 33 begins with the scribes and Pharisees answering him, what he had just said. And uh, they didn't really appreciate those words. Not at all. First of all, they said, we are offspring of Abraham. They were very proud of their, of their background, their uh, genealogical background of ancestors and so forth, going all the way back to Abraham, the passage read for you earlier in the first service from Genesis chapter 12. So they acknowledged that. They were proud of that. But then they go on and say, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now that's a remarkable statement they made. If you know anything about the history of Israel and the Jews, first of all, they were formed uh, shortly after enslavement where? In Egypt, Egyptian slavery, 400 years. And then they got to the promised land, and there were Philistines and all kinds of Hittites and other ites there that they had to deal with. Then uh, came the uh, Assyrian invasion, from taking the ten northern tribes and scattering them off into slavery. Then came the Babylonians down and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and took a number of Babylonians back 
to Babylon with them. Then came the Medes and Persians. Then came the Greeks, the influence of Alexander the Great. And finally, the Romans, finally I say in terms of Jesus when he's speaking here, because when Jesus was giving these words and the Jews were answering him, the Roman a Roman garrison was not very far away. And you could turn to look to the right, to the left, you see a Roman soldier standing over here, a Roman soldier standing over there. Yet here they are saying, we've never been enslaved to anyone. What a remarkable thing to say. But that's not all they say in verse number 33. Right at the end of that verse, how is it that you say, and the word you is emphasized in the Greek text, how is it you say to us that we must become free as if we're not? Jesus of Nazareth, just who do you think you are? You're simply a, a, a fraud rabbi from up in Galilee, of all places. But down here in Judea, we are free. We are honest people. We are patriotic. We are very religious citizens. So how does Jesus respond? Boy, that's a triple whammy right there, isn't it? Verse 33. We're offspring of Abraham. Never been enslaved to anyone. And who are you to say these things? Well, Jesus responds there in verse number 34 with a uh, double assertion of his divine authority. Truly, truly. The old King James Version says, verily, verily. Jesus says it twice to emphasize what he is saying is correct and accurate and true. Now, the Jews, when they heard that, would begin to think, this guy sounds something like the Old Testament prophets. Because over and over again, and we read this throughout the Old Testament, what do we, phrase do we hear? Thus says the Lord. The prophet spoke with the authority of the Lord God, Jehovah. And now here's Jesus of Nazareth saying, Verily I say unto you, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And they didn't like that very much at all. And then Jesus speaks, really focuses on the enemy of freedom. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There is the enemy, the rebelliousness of their own sinful hearts to which they were enslaved. And that's been the true of everybody in humanity, with the exception of Jesus, who was not born with the curse of Adam's sin upon him. Everybody's been born with this, this sinful nature, this tendency to rebel against God, to rebel against his ways. That's just natural for everyone. In the Roman Empire of that first century were millions of slaves. So this whole idea of slavery was quite familiar to his listeners as he spoke these words. There were two types of slaves, however. One type had a certain amount of, of, of freedom given to that person. In fact, uh, the slave might even be a, a tutor of the children or have other privileges given to him. The second kind of slavery, however, is what we usually envision, chained and beaten and abused 
And I believe the context indicates that it's that second kind of slavery that's in view here when Jesus speaks at the end of verse 34, a slave to sin. <coughs> the Roman philosopher Seneca once said, and he was not a believer as we understand it, show me anyone who is not a slave. One is a slave to lust, another to avarice, and another to ambition, and all alike to fear. And then there's a German philosopher, Goethe, again, not a believer as we understand it, but he was correct at this, no one is more of slave than he who thinks himself free without being so. Now notice back in verse number uh, 33, we have never been a slave to anyone, and Jesus answers that by saying, everyone who practices sin is a slave. Well, that pretty much takes care of every, everybody who's ever lived. There's nobody who lives a perfect life other than, as I said, Jesus. So Jesus kind of contrasts that there. We're very familiar with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man, it was Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. How about Romans 6, verses 12 through 14? Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now those are some more positive words there in terms of what Jesus says here. Because the key phrase there, or the key word commits, or commits sins, is in what's called the imperfect tense, meaning something that happens in the past, but it continues and continues and continues. And that's what is being talked about here. Same idea in 1 John 3, 4, where John writes, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, Sin is lawlessness. Sin is not obeying the truth of God's word. The Jews wanted freedom from Rome very definitely. They wanted to throw the Romans out. But they weren't too concerned about their own sinful hearts. And isn't that true what we have to deal with in our day? Uh, we have a doctrine, the, the phrase we use is total depravity or total inability. It means the sinner, when that person is born, is totally unable to do anything spiritually good before sight. They might do some good to one another, to their family, to their neighbors, to their fellow employees. But as far as God is concerned, nothing pleases Him because they're totally depraved. They're totally degraded. They're totally wicked in their hearts. That sense of rebellion is there. Not to do what God wants them to do, but to do what they want to do. And there's the problem. And the grip of that kind of thing gets tighter and tighter. Perhaps you've heard the story, I believe it's true, that some years ago there was a, a snake handler, and he had a fairly big snake, kind of like a boa constrictor type thing, and he would wrap that thing around him, and people would say, oh, look at that, wow. And then he'd 
unwrap it, ta-da! He kept doing that over and over and over again, but he didn't realize that every time he was doing it, the snake was getting stronger. Until finally one time he could not pull it off, and it just simply crushed him to death. That's what sin does to the human heart. If you don't deal with it, it's just going to get more and more in its strength. Therefore, everywhere we find throughout history, tyranny, opposition or oppression, despotism, totalitarianism, bondage, servitude. Everywhere we find murder, theft, arguments, lying, cheating. We find attacks on the church, on the Bible, and even on God himself. So don't be surprised if you're sharing the gospel with somebody and trying to explain it, then they just shut you off. So I'm, I'm not interested in that. Don't believe it. Don't accept it. That's the enemy of freedom. Harold Decker, who used to occasionally speak on the Back to God Hour radio program, he once said, The tyranny of all tyrannies is the empire of sin. Its subjects are millions of souls. Its dictator is Satan. Its secret police are the demons of the devil. Its weapons are pride and passion. Its H-bomb is the lie. Its labor camp is the present world. Its death house is hell. Clearly, humanity needs an emancipator from this problem. What do we mean by an emancipator? It's somebody who comes and, like a redeemer, frees somebody from bondage. Lincoln is known, Abraham Lincoln is known as the great emancipator because of his part in what happened at the end of the Civil War. Wilbur, uh, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce in England, was very instrumental in stopping the slave trade in his day. Very, a Christian man. Sinners need to be emancipated or freed from their predicament of their sin problem, but we need somebody who can do that. Let me go down to verse number 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son, capital S, set you free, you'll be free indeed. John introduces the uh, idea here, or Jesus introduces the idea of the house or the family. In a Roman home, as I said, a slave uh, had certain privileges, but matter whether you were in chains or not in chains as a slave, you only had a temporary insecure position in the home. You might have certain privileges, perhaps, some slaves more than others, but it was always kind of temporary. And if you disobeyed, you were expelled or worse from the family. However, the son, S-O-N, small s, who lived in the family, is the heir of what was happening. He was part of the family, and he would not be kicked out. He was there permanently because he was the son of the family. And so Jesus is drawing a contrast here. Uh, a similar situation in... Uh, Galatians chapter 4, where Paul talks to the, the Galatian believers of the church. They were saying, they were tending 
to go, want to lapse back to their old Judaism. And Paul in chapter 4 says, wait a minute here. Do you realize what your folks are doing? You folks are trying to be like Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the bond slave. You're, you're wanting to go back to slavery again. Why in the world do you want to do that? You want to go back to man-made rules and man-made laws and your demands and bringing others into slavery with you. If you continue to forsake God's truth, then you have to face the consequences. I'm wondering here if there's just a hint of the coming judgment of 70 A.D. when the Romans did come down and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So in verse 36, look at the end of that verse. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed, free genuinely, free really, lasting, not something kind of temporary. So Paul goes on to say in Galatians 4, don't be like Ishmael, the son of the bondservant. You need to remember you are like Isaac. You are part of God's family. You're the son of Sarah, the free woman. You need to keep that in mind. Therefore, you are free from the guilt of sin, free from the being free from the complete power of your sin. And through Jesus, we can have victories over various dark areas of our lives. John MacArthur tells of a man who, though intellectually convinced of the gospel in his head, he balked at committing his life to Christ. And when he was asked why, he said, because I do not want to give up my freedom and have to follow the lordship of Christ. At least he was honest how he felt about that. And there you go. The influence of sin in the human heart. Uh, that man was making uh, tragically deceived into thinking that uh, non-Christians were free and Christians were not. Not realizing that Christians have a double freedom. A freedom from their sins and freedom to have the ability, by God's grace, to not sin. Let me run that by you again. If you're a believer, you've not only been freed from your guilt of your past sins, but you've been given the power by the Spirit of Christ in your heart to enable you to overcome sins and to have that freedom to do what you ought to do. Dr. Paul Tripp has written, We're all slaves. The question is to whom or to what? Everyone is willing to make a sacrifices. The question is, to whom or for what? We all follow sets of rules. The question is, whose and for what? We all give our hearts to do something. The question is, to whom or to what? We were never hardwired to be free, if by freedom we mean an independent, self-sufficient life. We were created by God to be connected to something vastly bigger than ourselves. Now, have you heard the stories of Billy the Bird and Freddy the Fish? Let me briefly tell you. Billy the Bird was flying around, enjoying the sky and going here and going there. But it was a very warm day, and every once in a while he looked down at this pond, and he said, that looks, 
Rather cruel and refreshing. So one day he decided, I'm going to just dive into that pond. We dove into that pond, and oh, did it feel good. So refreshing to get rid of the hot heat of the day up there in the air. And he was just looking around. It was just wonderful until all of a sudden he realized he couldn't breathe. And he managed to flap his wings enough and get out of there on the shore and eventually dry out enough to get back up into the air. Just about that same time in another pond was Freddie the fish. And he was swimming around enjoying the freedom of being in the water, going here, going there, under that rock, on top of that rock. And, but he was looking up through the water, and he could see these things moving around up there. He said, what? I wonder what that must be like. And so he managed to flop himself out onto the shore and said, whoa, look at this. Wow, this is great. I've never seen like this before until all of a sudden he began to have trouble breathing. And he managed to flop his way back into the pond. So what's the lesson we learned from Billy the bird and Freddy the fish? Each of them was truly free, but limited to the atmosphere, the environment to which, for which they had been created. What's the purpose of humanity? What's man's chief purpose? The catechism question says, man's chief end, chief purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Not doing whatever I want to do. Now, as we begin to close this up here, I was going to say a few things about two words that maybe have been lurking in your mind as I've been preaching here. Free will. I don't want to get into that. If you look at chapter 9 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there are five rather brief statements there that will help clarify that that matter. But uh, we need to at least think about this, that when we talk about free will, whatever you mean to understand by that, You have to understand that there are many influences about how and why you will what you do, how you make decisions. Let me mention a few. Your health, how you're feeling. Circumstances, what's going on in your life. How about uh, what others say? How about peer pressure? Well, I know I should do this, but everybody's saying I should do this. Are you really free? The weather, the level of your knowledge, your IQ, demands of your employment. Oh, I've got to go to work today. I like to do this and that, but I can't. I'm stuck over here. In other words, we aren't as free to do our thing as we might think we are. We do make decisions. In that sense, we have a free will. But let's not think that we're so free that we can operate our own lives. Now, to conclude, the really good news of the gospel as far as this subject is concerned is not just the forgiveness of sins, not just the removal of guilt, praise the Lord for that, but also, as I said earlier, the new ability by God's grace to be free to do what we ought to do, seeking to please the Son of God with whom we abide in His truth, abide in His house, and this is something for the believer that will last throughout this life and will go on forever. So I'd ask you this morning, you are here. I trust that most of you, or maybe perhaps all of you, are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, and you realize that 
whatever freedom you have, you need to use for His glory. That's great. But uh, perhaps some of you need to look deeper in your heart and ask yourself, you know, am I really ready to submit to the Lord? Am I really uh, a believer? Uh, do I really seek to abide in His words? Or am I interested in what He says and how I should live? Those are the questions you should be asking. That's why Paul, after those words in Galatians about Ishmael and Isaac, at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, so, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The believer has great freedom. Freedom for this life and the life to come. Praise for things present and things that are coming our way. Ultimately, freedom forever. Have you found that freedom in your heart? Or do you still keep trying to dive into the pond and flounder and flop on the shore? Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to this world to emancipate us from our sinful predicament. How much we need his forgiveness and how much we need his power to infill us by his spirit to enable us to do what we ought to do. May we not take that freedom for granted and may we not rest upon our own selfish desires but upon your holy will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.